0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of A Dog Named Mattis, 12 lessons for living courageously, serving selflessly, and building bridges from a heroic canine officer. Written and narrated by Sergeant Mark Tappan, Available now everywhere.
1: Last week, a California couple's two-year-old daughter stopped breathing and died. In the wake of the tragedy, the parents, Andrew and Callie Hillingenthal, had an unusual response. Quote, We are asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in belief that he will raise this little girl back to life. Her time here is not done, and it is our time to believe boldly and with confidence wield what what King Jesus paid for. It's time for her to come to life. Callie, a worship leader and songwriter at Bethel Church, wrote this on Instagram, where she has more than 250,000 followers. In response to her words, hundreds of people posted prayers under the hashtag WakeUpOlive. Reaction to the healing Gandhal's actions has been polarized, and not just because of what the couple is asking God for. In 2016, Bethel was the subject of a Christianity Today cover story where we described the congregation as, quote, popular and controversial. I'm going to just read an excerpt from this particular story that we did. Revival is the unifying theme at Bethel, and the word means far more here than increased personal piety. At Bethel, I had heard, people are healed all the time. The church keeps a log of healing stories on their website. YouTube videos seem to show glittering clouds of material falling from the ceiling that Bethel people identify as, quote, gold dust. They also report an occasional admixture of, quote, angel feathers and a Shekinah glory cloud. There are those here who cast out demons and raise the dead. At least they claim to. Throngs of Christians argue that Bethel is a damaging presence in the American church and that the miracles are false. So that is from our 2016 cover story, which we will link to in the show notes and you can read to if you have more questions. Because Bethel probably deserves its own show, we really just merely wanted to talk about miracles. What are they? And when should we ask God for them? You are listening to an early Christmas edition of Quick to Listen. We go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today.
0: And I'm Mark Galley, still editor in chief for just a few more days.
1: All right, Mark, <laughs> you have literally been giving yourself your own countdown. For exactly. this. Unfortunately, some people are going to miss you. Many of them, the thousands of people that listen to the show,
0: actually. Well, maybe so. I will miss doing the show with you.
1: I will miss doing the show with you.
0: That's for sure. But I'm not a news junkie, so it's all, there's been many weeks it's like, do we really have to talk about this already? Can't we think about it for like a couple months? <laughs> <laughs> and Morgan says,
1: no, we have to talk about it now. Everyone's talking about it. Well, I think this is actually one of those times. Mark, I can't think of a more perfect subject to do a gut check on. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) than everything that we just raised in the last three minutes. I want to know what your thoughts were about this whole thing. Well,
0: we talked about it ahead of time, and I'll be interested in hearing Lee talk about, our guest talk about this, but I will say I do believe God still does miracles. I believe there is probably the occasional raising from the dead. But when I hear a story like that, I cringe. I roll my eyes and I cringe and I feel really bad for the parents because I'm pretty sure their prayer is not going to get answered. So I don't know if I'm a realist, a pessimist, a cynic, or just a confused Christian. But that that's my first reaction when I hear stories like this.
1: Thank you for your honesty. I have two different thoughts. The first one is I have really been puzzling, I guess, over what the word miracle actually means. And sometimes I think it's like a little bit too broad. Like when we're saying like we're asking God for miracles, I think I might have shared on the show for my birthday party this year. I did the storytelling night. I said, okay, everyone gets to share a story. It's going to be five minutes long. And I just gave one people one theme word. And the theme word was miracle. Of course, people interpret that extremely broadly with what that is. And so it just makes me think like, what exactly are we asking God to do? And then when God does it, or when when God does something in our life, when are we saying that's a miracle or not? That's one thing that this makes me like really think about, because also just this story alone started generating all these conversations. Basically everyone I hung out with last night, I was asking them (laughs) about this particular story, because I think it says a lot about how we view faith, how we expect or don't expect God to show up. Yeah. Even what we deem as quote unquote possible. All right. So who is joining us today to talk about this
0: us today is Lee Strobel, the former award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. He's also a New York Times best-selling author of more than 40 books and curricula that have sold 14 million copies in total. He's been described in the Washington Post as, quote, one of the evangelical community's most popular apologists, end quote. And he's won national awards for his books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for a Creator, and The Case for Grace. And his latest book, most appropriately, is The Case for Miracles.
2: Welcome, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: It is great to have you here. I'm just curious, was there something specific that prompted you to look into miracles in your most recent book?
2: I was an atheist for much of my life, and it was really the historical evidence for a miracle, that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that brought me to faith in Christ. It was what I found to be a a persuasive amount of historical data establishing that Jesus didn't just claim to be the Son of God, but he backed up that claim by returning from the dead. But I always harbored some Hesitation about the question of whether God is still in the miracle business today. Is he still doing miracles in the 21st century? Is he still, you know, divinely intervening in people's lives? I'd hear stories and, you know, I'm kind of a skeptic by nature. So I'd see something on television or I'd hear a story about a miraculous healing. And I kind of roll my eyes a little bit and say, OK, that's probably the result of a spontaneous remission of an illness or emotionalism or wishful thinking or fakery or fraud. I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound overly negative, but I tend to be skeptical. So I decided to take two years and to systematically investigate this issue of whether or not God is still in the miracle business today. So that's what led to my book, The Case for Miracles, and also a little gift book that we did called The the Miracle Answer Book.
1: I want to go back to the question that... I was kind of asking to myself, when you say miracle, Lee, what are you
2: talking about? People do use it in a lot of different ways. In a lot of ways, we use it very loosely. Like, you know, I'm, I'm in downtown Houston where I live and, oh my gosh, I found a parking place at rush hour. It's a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> now that might be a miracle knowing <laughs> the traffic in Houston, but there you go. Uh, I think the best definition that I found of miracles comes from a late uh, philosophy professor named Richard Pertil. And it's a five-point definition. I think it covers the basis pretty well. This is what it is. A miracle is an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. What I like about that is it it, it emphasizes it's a intervention, it's a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature. You know, a lot of skeptics like David Hume, the famous Scottish skeptic, said, well, miracles are impossible. Because miracles are a violation of the laws of nature. The laws of nature cannot be violated. Therefore, miracles are not possible. But that's a misunderstanding of what miracles are. I'm I'm sitting here holding a pen. If I were to drop this pen, the law of gravity says it would hit the floor. But if I drop this pen and you reach in and grab it before it hits the floor... You're not violating the law of gravity. You're not overturning the law of gravity. You're merely intervening. And that's what God does in a miracle. He created the laws of nature, and he's merely intervening in those laws in order to accomplish something that will show that he has acted in history. I think that's a pretty good definition.
1: I think it's also interesting to think about what definitions leave out, just so we're the clearest we can be about what these things are or are not, for the sake of this conversation. Again, I think one way that we also use miracle beyond the... Parking space example is to talk about people's hearts changing for the purpose of this conversation. I guess would not necessarily be considered a miracle.
2: I wouldn't consider a miracle. I would consider it a divine uh, something that that God brings to pass in a person's life. Second Corinthians said, "The old is gone, the new has come." When we come to faith in Christ, I think it's a wonderful salvation is an incredible experience. Uh, the renewal of the heart, the fresh perspective and worldview and attitudes and behavior of people who've come into the family of God is remarkable, astounding many times, hard to explain many times. I don't think it technically is a miracle, but I do believe it's a work of God for sure.
1: Okay. And then what about the other kind of way that they get talked about in the New Testament, specifically this language of signs and wonders?
2: I kind of equate the two. I think signs and wonders are a way of expressing that which is miraculous. Certainly, we see that in the New Testament. We see it in the works of Jesus, the miracles that he wrought. We see it in the early church, the miracles that took place. I believe we see it today.
1: I do want to start with... Jesus, we are kind of in the season of miracles in some way. I mean, obviously, I guess you could make the case sure. that Easter is also a season of miracles. Hello, I'm not trying yeah. to <laughs> pretend. That Do you
0: not believe in the resurrection, Morgan? <laughs> <laughs> Have I finally outed you <laughs>
1: <laughs> on on one podcast, no less? No, but you know, there's there's certain particular. Well, I was just Christmas. reading
0: about them the last couple mornings in my daily readings. One, there's a miracle of Mary's pregnancy, and the miracle of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Right off the bat, in the in the gospel. Of Luke. That's what happens.
2: Exactly. I mean, we have the Gospel of Luke, which tells the the virgin conception from Mary's perspective. He probably interviewed Mary or people who knew her. Matthew also has an independent account that he probably got from James, a half brother of Jesus. uh, Matthew and James were both uh, leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. Of course, Joseph died uh, before the earthly ministry of Jesus, but probably passed on to James what had occurred. And so, Matthew's account, if you count the number of times that Joseph and Mary are mentioned in Luke's account and Matthew's account. Matthew's account seems to come more from uh, uh, Joseph's perspective. So here we have two independent accounts of the virgin conception of Jesus that predate those Gospels.
1: That's really interesting. So we have those miracles that occur in events surrounding Jesus, but are not actually performed by Jesus himself. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, Lee, but do we know how many miracles Jesus is recorded as having done during his lifetime? during the course of his three years of ministry?
2: I, I think technically the word is a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> That's very accurate. It's yeah. <laughs> another word I often use. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm curious, too, for Mark, if you want to chime in here as well. Is there anything that really like strikes you about the types of miracles that Jesus ends up performing?
0: No, there's a couple of what I, I consider oddball miracles. They don't seem to fit the pattern.
1: What's the pattern, though? The
0: pattern seems to be he does miracles for the most part simply to help people in their infirmities, helping the deaf to speak and the blind to see. And then every once in a while, there's a miracle thrown in where he does something like tells Peter to go out and catch a fish and there's a coin in it, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with helping human beings flourish, but just seems to be out there, which leads a lot of people to doubt that miracle. They'll say, well, oh, that one strikes, strikes me as apocryphal. Well, surely he has an opinion on that. But that just what is an example of the category of miracles, the ones that are. And then, of course, people may take the healing miracles as uh, somehow the, the miracles of Jesus had a psychosomatic effect or a psychological effect on the person. So a person who didn't think they could walk, Jesus somehow convinced them they had the self-esteem to walk, that sort of thing. Or the miracles of the loaves and fishes. I just saw this on a movie the other night, a great Christmas movie, by the way millions. And it was great, except for this one bit of exegesis in which they talk about one of the saints comes back, I think it's St. Peter, and he's explaining to a boy, the real miracle of the loaves and fishes is that people learn to share with one another. (laughs) (laughs) And I just rolled my eyes and said, "Okay, I'm going to bracket that out. The movie's still great.
2: (laughs) You know, the other thing that Jesus' miracles did, and we see this in John 10, where Jesus said, you know, do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So in other words, he, in that case, was saying, uh, let the miraculous works sort of persuade you of the validity of his message. And then we, we see the um, in Mark chapter 2, where he heals the paralytic man who has been lowered on his mat into the place where Jesus was. You know, he forgives his sin, but he heals him as well. And I think it's a way of, of illustrating that, and, and he made this explicit, so that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that he healed him as well as forgave his sins. So I think it points to the the validity of Jesus' ministry and his divine identity. It's interesting, too, in the Old Testament, we see a resurrection that took place in 1 Kings 17, where Elijah raised the widow's son, and and the widow instantly recognized, she said, now I know you're a man of God. So there was a, a way in which Elijah validated his prophetic credentials by raising this widow's son from the dead.
0: Actually, one of my favorite miracles I became a, more keenly aware of after reading the Dostoevsky's uh, The Brother. This Karamazov, in which Alyosha talks about the first, he describes it as the first miracle of Jesus. It was this is not a direct quote. It wasn't intended to heal people's infirmities, but to en- enhance their joy. And it's the miracle of the creating the wine at the wedding at Cana. I think there's a, that's a that might even be considered another category of miracle where the miracle is just bringing abundance to something that wasn't abundant before. That might that might be a Peter's catch of the fish might be in that category too. But they all but they all do the thing that you talk about. They validate. They stamp. They put an exclamation point by the per, uh, about the person of Jesus
1: I'm definitely with you, Mark, uh, now I'm like, I really want to create different, like, official names for the different types of miracles. Like, it almost feels like talking about miracles, too, generally undersells what Jesus is actually doing and accomplishing in all these different spaces, right? Like, we have some of the ones where he does healing, but I would say healing is completely different different than, like, the resurrection that he performs as well. Then there's also some that deal with demons, right? I think those are you know, actually some that. of the most, like, well, puzzling a, ones. But that's
0: a kind of healing, and that would be the one that gained a lot of psychological interpretation in mainline circles, having spent Many many years of my life in the mainline world. That whenever they could, I, I remember once did it does it does strike me as a, a what the conversation used to be like in mainline circles, especially. So I preached on the I was a pastor Lee for uh, ten years Presbyterian Church, and I was pastor of a church that was fairly moderate to liberal at the time. Why they hired an evangelical is still a mystery to me. But so after the, I preached on the uh, story of Jonah, and I just ignored the entire problem of miracles of Jonah getting swallowed and all that. I just decided to preach on the story itself and what it tells us about a good God who wants to reach out to people. And I had a person come up to me and said, you don't actually believe that happened, do you? So he couldn't even, he could not listen to the story because he wanted he wanted some sort of scientific analysis of the miracle. And I do think in many churches that I think we're beyond that now. I don't know if that's your experience.
2: I, I am seeing different reactions among churches. And one one of the people I interviewed for my book, The Case for Miracles, Roger Olson from Baylor University is a theologian. It's the point that a lot of evangelical churches are embarrassed by the supernatural. And he makes the point that a lot of evangelicals want to be accepted by the society at large. They want people to see us as normal. And so they want people to see us as, well, I'm just as normal as my neighbor. I just happen to believe been Jesus. But here, look at me. I'm just like everybody else. You know, I don't believe this wacky stuff. I think he's got a point there. I think there are some evangelicals today who downplay the miraculous, who don't specifically ask for it or seek it or explore it but who would rather kind of shove it aside because it makes them kind of oddballs by believing that there are things like angels and there are things like prophetic dreams and that there are healings and stuff like that. So I think one of the things that <laughs> that makes my book different is I'm not known as a charismatic. I'm, I'm you know, I grew up in an interdenominational church uh, after I came to faith and sort of a just an evangelical church that was not known for the practicing of, you know, gifts of healing and so So I think, you know, if if the case for miracles had been written by a well-known charismatic, it probably would have been dismissed more readily than being written by someone like me who's not seen as being part of that kind of genre.
0: I will confess to that embarrassment about miracles. I mean, I graduated from Fuller Seminary, a very, very fine seminary. But somehow the issue got communicated to me that what's really important in a lot of the gospel stories is not the miracle, but what the miracle means. So here's an example, in a sense, was led astray and was caught committing bad exegesis. Jesus, maybe. So I'm teaching a Bible study lesson to some Laotian refugees working through an interpreter. They wanted to become members. And I said, Well, you need to know about Jesus. And if you want to become a member, that's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, we're happy to do that, Pastor. So we're reading the story of Jesus stilling the storm. I'm thinking, I don't want to get caught up in the problem of miracles. Let's just go right to the heart of the story, which is we all have storms in our life. I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm turning red just saying what I what I did. We all have storms in our life, and Jesus can still them. What are some of the storms in your life? And there was this puzzle, and nobody said anything. So I reiterated the question in a different way, and said, so what What are the storms in your life that Jesus can calm? And they started talking to one another in Laotian. and finally I said, "What's what's the deal?" And the ter- interpreter, young woman, said, "Well, they want to know if Jesus really still that storm." <laughs> I'm really embarrassed. Said, it's not, I don't want to get into that. It's not really. Yes, I think he did, but I don't think that's that important. I think it's really important that we understand that Jesus stills the storms of our heart. They talked with each other. And then she turned to me and said, well, what the senior elder here is saying is if Jesus still the storm, he must be a pretty powerful person. <laughs> <laughs> At which point I realized a couple things. The story of miracles are still relevant, they had gotten the point of the story, and I hadn't.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's also another genre of miracle, too, is Jesus versus nature, I guess you could say. I do want to talk about Jesus' decision to raise two different people from the dead. Do you guys see anything that different or unique about these particular decisions? Just to recap, in case people do not remember them, one of them is when he raises Gyrus's daughter, Jairus' is. One of the key religious leaders in this town that is begging and imploring Jesus to raise his daughter or to heal his daughter, I believe, and his daughter dies while Jesus is en route. And then Jesus raises her from the dead. And the other one is one of Jesus's good friends named Lazarus, who also dies before Jesus gets there. And in one of my favorite parts of the Bible, Jesus is scolded <laughs> by his sister, who blames <laughs> Jesus for the fact that Lazarus ends up dying because he showed up too late. But I'm I'm just curious. Clearly this this is not the first as we mentioned earlier or a couple minutes ago, this is not the first time that someone raises someone else from the dead. That happens in the Old Testament. But what makes it unique that Jesus decides to do this as part of his ministry?
2: There's a distinction between his resurrection and him bringing these people back to life because Jesus, in contrast to them, made the claim that he is a unique son of God. He said, I and the father are one. The word in Greek there for one is not masculine, it's neuter. So Jesus was not saying I and the father are the same person. He was saying I and the father are the same thing. We're one in nature, we're one in essence. So in a variety, of different ways from the earliest gospel to the latest gospel. Jesus made divine and messianic and, and transcendent claims about himself. And so I see one of the uh, meanings of his resurrection as being a, a, a validation of that claim, that uh, God would not have allowed him to be raised from the dead if he were making up this stuff. If he were lying about his divine credentials, certainly God would not have raised him from the dead. But here we have him sort of validating his divine identity in contrast with these other two people that he, uh, Jesus raised who didn't make those kind of claims. And and uh, I think the, the motivation of Jesus in raising them there, of course, was different.
0: Another difference is that it does seem that Jesus' resurrection entailed a transformation of sorts that it was actually difficult for the early disciples to recognize him at first. Whereas when Lazarus comes from the grave, nobody is a mistake. Oh, who are you? And they know immediately it's Lazarus. But uh, there seemed to be some confusion when Jesus raises that he it is him who is raised. So there's some transformation of his appearance that apparently is miraculous with a capital M Them as well.
1: Lee, you said that you had studied what the early church's relationship with miracles was. And I'm wondering if you can share some of that.
2: In the earliest church, we see not only miracles taking place, but resurrections taking place. You know, and we see that right there in the book of Acts, which describes the early days of the church. And we see numerous miracles there, Peter healing the lame man in the temple and God answering Peter in, in this miraculous earthquake. He talks about the prison doors being opened by an angel and says Stephen did wonders and uh, Philip did wonders in Samaria. And so we have a variety of miracles there, including, of course, in Acts chapter 9, where Peter goes and he heals or raises from the dead. Uh, Tabitha, or Dorcas, presents her alive. And it's interesting in that passage in Acts chapter it says that, and many people believed in the Lord. So God used it in that case to point people toward him. So we see going back to the earliest days of the church, we see a continuation of the miraculous, including resurrections.
1: Do either of you know if, I don't know, maybe when the quote unquote trail goes cold? I mean, is this stuff that the early church is documenting all the time, 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century, noting these types of things? Or is there a point where that doesn't kind of become part of their written record?
2: I'm, I'm not an expert on the, um, you know, the first few centuries of Christianity in terms of what happened. So I wouldn't be the, the, the an authority on that. Certainly they they uh, based on what happened with Jesus the the ultimate hope to all of them was a the resurrection their ultimate resurrection from the dead so everything was based on the reality of the miracle the resurrection of Jesus applied in their cases there were some exceptions first Corinthians 15 verse 12 where uh, some denied the future resurrection but then of course Paul set them straight so certainly the reliance on the miracle of the resurrection was a major theme of the early church uh, I'm not an expert in either but i've read
0: enough to know that there was a there was a dying out of the number of miracles and there there are sermons and writings about so why is this the case so there is a noticeable people notice it We do have a number of miracles then from, I don't know, third, fourth century on through the Middle Ages, which are as a result of an encounter with a saint or praying to a saint or praying at a shrine. Again, I don't know if they would stand up to the historical scrutiny that all of them would stand up to the historical scrutiny that Lee gave to some contemporary things. But it does seem fair to say that uh, no doubt a number of those were genuine works of God that helped people grow in faith in Christ.
2: Things that were certainly um, invented uh, in these later centuries as well, we have, for instance, the Acts of Pilate, which talks about the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, but in detail that supposedly was from Pilate himself, uh, <laughs> we know was not uh, authentic and was made up to counter people who were claiming that the resurrection was you know, not true. So we have some of that going on as well. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
1: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October
0: 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and
2: sirens go off and they're, and they're going on.
1: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
0: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there.
1: This week, promised land moves to its own feed you'll find links in the show notes so if you haven't heard it yet you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they
0: come all in one place this episode is brought to you by our daily bread ministries a global media organization that makes the life-changing wisdom of the bible understandable and accessible to all as a part of that mission, Where You're From is a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us on each episode as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offers us important perspectives worth thinking about. To see our list of guests, visit whereyou'refrom.org today. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. I'm Russell Berry reminding you that it's not just about where you're at, but it's also about where you're from.
1: When you were mentioning saints, Mark, it also made, it also reminded me that in the Catholic Church, if you want to become a saint now, don't you have to have three miracles, I believe?
0: Uh, something like that. Yeah. Some, somehow attested to you, an answer to prayer that is extraordinary or a miracle of some sort of connected with, connected with that saint in some way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I went to a Catholic school and I remember for the person who the, my school was named after, for him to be beatified, so before sainthood, but to be beatified, right. he needed to have a saint or a miracle attributed to him, which I always was like, hey, Wait, what? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I just stopped associating Catholicism and miracles. Right.
2: Led the way in terms of documenting things that have taken place. I've sought to, you know, document whether or not these people actually did perform miracles, which I think has been a service. That's what I spent a lot of my time doing the last few years, investigating cases and trying to document whether or not there's sufficient evidence to believe something really occurred.
0: I think the Catholic Church hierarchy is much more conservative about that than laity are, and they, they have huge demands on evidence before they're going to say, oh, that miracle happened.
1: Now we kind of go to there maybe make my, my favorite point to kind of start these conversations which is the Protestant Reformation right I really have no clue I feel terrible saying this but I have no clue what the reformers thought of miracles at all well,
2: You know I I just happened to be reading some stuff recently uh, about 16th and 17th century Protestant ministers in England and what they talked about when it came to miracles so you have some post reformation preaching going on uh, reflecting the thinking of the times and they would deny that extraordinary events like that still occurred. They would say that they ceased. They would say, and again, following some of Calvin's teachings, they would say, you know, the the early miracles that we see in Scripture were necessary. Those were the first seeds of the faith. They were necessary to plant this new religion that centers on the redemption of mankind, but that that was only of temporary duration. That was the mother's milk, which initially the church was weaned on. But now they would say that it's the Word of God. It's the meat of the Word of God that they would be expected to learn from rather than to be anticipating these miracles taking place to validate their belief in God and so forth. And of course, today we have cessationists uh, in the church who deny—well, there's two kinds of cessationists, really. One, one is those who deny the continued valid uh, um, existence of spiritual gifts of healing. And then you have others that will go further and deny that miracles themselves still take place. They'll look to passages like 1 Corinthians 13— They talk about where there are prophecies, they're going to be ceasing, uh, where their tongues they'll be still, where there's knowledge will pass away, that what we know in part is going to uh, disappear. And they would say that that disappeared, that this completeness came at the time of the uh, canon of Scripture.
0: When in your reading, does that shift then? Does that start with the Great Awakenings with more extraordinary occurrences happening? Or does it wait till the 19th century Holiness Pentecostal movement?
2: You know, again, I'm I'm not an expert on on those aspects of church history. I was focusing primarily on the contemporary times. But, but certainly we do see that there is evidence of continuing miracles that kind of have people scratching their head and saying, well, golly, if, if miracles have ceased, why are we seeing these apparent manifestations of the Holy Spirit in ways that can't be explained in natural terms?
0: I actually see in my reading of church history, there's evidence of a kind of Pentecostalism that believes in miracles spotted all through church history. But again, I'm not an expert. It's my, you know, I'm a, a jack of all trades and master of none when it comes to church history. But that's my kind of overview sweep of history as I read it. We won't belabor.
1: We, we definitely want to speed up to the present 20th century,
0: here. yeah, we want to get so, to So to... sorry
1: to drag it out so long. <laughs> For all of our but listeners, now... I know the suspense is building. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let us set the stage of maybe where you talked a little bit about maybe where your own Christian upbringing had kind of led you on this topic lead. Would you say that that seemed to kind of be in line where you found many evangelical churches to be today?
2: I think they're all across the board. You know, we see churches that really emphasize the supernatural and, and the uh, very active role of the Holy Spirit in, in producing miracles of all kinds. And, and we see other churches that downplay that or or certainly don't encourage that kind of teaching. So we, I, I think we see a spectrum in, uh, in, the, in the modern church. I, I do think, though, that there is good evidence that miracles are continuing to take place. I did a, I hired George Barna's organization to do a scientific survey for me of American adults. And I, one of the questions I asked was, have you ever had an experience in your life that you can only explain as being a miracle of God? And 38% of American adults said yes. Now, if you extrapolate that number, that would mean there'd be 94 million miracles just in the United (laughs) States.
0: Assuming they only had one.
2: Yeah, that's right. So let's let's say 95% of them are wrong. Let's say 95% think it was a miracle, but it was just an amazing coincidence. That still leaves a million miracles. Uh, So people certainly think that God is active. They certainly think that miracles are taking place in their lives. And, And actually, we've had some very interesting scientific studies that have suggested then indeed uh, some supernatural activity may very well be going on.
1: Well, please tell us. We're writing about well, some of the scientific well, stuff that you saw found.
2: On the, on the contrary side, one of the people I interviewed for my book was uh, the most famous skeptic in America, Michael Shermer, Skeptic Magazine. And he said, well, Lee, don't you know that uh, science has shown that miracles don't happen, that prayer doesn't work? And he pointed to a study that had been done called uh, The Therapeutic Effects of inter- Intercessory Prayer, or STEP, which was done under the auspices of Harvard Medical School. They spent like $2.4 million on this thing. You know, you look at this 10-year clinical trial, they studied 1,800 cardiac bypass patients at six hospitals, and they divided them into three groups, one group that was prayed for, a second that was not prayed for, although neither of them knew whether or not they're being prayed for. And a third group that was prayed for and was told that they were prayed for. And he said, well, don't you know, Lee, that the result was that there was absolutely no difference in the rate of complications for patients who were prayed for and those who were not. And the ones that knew they're being prayed for, they actually got worse results than the others. And so he said, there you go. I saw that as a challenge, and I investigated that particular prayer study, and what did I find? Well, I found, wouldn't it be kind of important on a study like this to know who was praying who they were praying to and how they were praying it turned out that the group that they had praying in this study were from the uh, Unity School of Christianity in Lee Summit Missouri which is a sect that denies biblical teaching on the divinity of Jesus on sin on salvation on the trinity on the bible just about every key christian doctrine they deny the leaders of the unity movement deny that prayer works deny that miracles happen believe that <laughs> prayers are useless huh. and, and don't really believe in a personal God. So so if you want a study that tells us absolutely nothing about the effects of Christian prayer, that would be a good place to spend $2.4 million. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, there have been several other studies that have been done through the years, similar studies where they have patients, cardiac patients who are recovering, published in, by the way, peer-reviewed medical journals, Southern Medical Journal, for instance. They had a study that was published, a prospective, randomized, double-blinded control study, 400 subjects. But here they had born-again Christians, Catholics and Protestants, who were praying specifically to the Christian God for rapid recovery and prevention of complications. And sure enough, the patients in the prayer group had less congestive heart failure, fewer cardiac arrests, fewer episodes of pneumonia, were less often intubated and ventilated, had less diuretic and antibiotic therapy, and so forth. So We've seen several studies like this, but the study that blew my mind, because I, I look at those studies and I say, wait a minute, how can you say this group is not being prayed for? Certainly they have relatives that are praying for them. Certainly they have friends that are praying for them. So I, I'm kind of skeptical of those kind of studies, the way they're, they're formulated. But the study that blew my mind, I went to Indiana University to a professor with a PhD from Harvard. And, you know, miracles are not, not even can- distributed. Not, not Candace. Yes, yes, yeah. Candice. We've had her on her show. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Okay, oh, go awesome. Ahead. She's awesome. In, in that case, I, I asked her, I was interviewing her and, and I said, you know, miracles tend to cluster in places around the world where the gospel is just breaking in. And she said, yes, we have that in Mozambique. And so to investigate that, what she did is she sent some researchers to Mozambique where they went into the remote areas and they said, bring us your blind and bring us your deaf. And so they did. And these are people with severe hearing or vision loss. And they tested them right on the spot scientifically to determine what is your level of vision? What is your level of hearing? Then immediately after that, they were prayed for in the name of Jesus by people who had a track record of God using them and healings. And then they were immediately scientifically tested again. What is the change, if there has been any, in their vision and in their hearing? And guess what they found? In virtually every case, there was improvement. In, case, in some cases, extraordinary improvement, like the, uh, a woman named Martine, who when they encountered her could not hear the equivalent of a jackhammer next door. her, and after prayers in the name of Jesus, she can now hear a normal conversation. So they went. And they said, "Wait a minute, we're, we're scientists. We want to do the next step, which is to try to replicate this." So they went to Brazil, which is another place where miracles are clustering because the gospel is breaking into a new area. They did the same kind of experiment. Guess what? They got the same kind of results. So this has been. Pu- this is a valid scientific study that has been published in a secular scientific, peer-reviewed medical journal. And I asked Dr. Brown, I said, what does this tell you? And she said, it tells me something is going on. She said, "It's not fakery, it's not fraud, it's not people under the effects of emotionalism or whatever, something is going on. I think that's a very intriguing study that suggests that indeed something supernatural is happening. It is very interesting, yep.
0: She went and uh, did some research on Heidi Baker and her ministry in Africa and them trying to confirm the legitimacy of her miracles. And I think she walked away saying, yeah, a lot of them seem to be
2: real. Exactly. And, and you know, I I explored some cases that just blew my mind. Um, my favorite one involves someone right from where you guys live, a woman by the name of Barbara Snyder. And for Barbara, we've got medical records from the Mayo Clinic. We've got numerous physicians and experts and, and uh, other people, witnesses to this, two Physicians wrote books about her case because they were so blown away by it. But Barbara was diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic with multiple sclerosis, and she deteriorated very quickly. Uh, she had multiple hospitalizations, multiple surgeries, until she was in hospice. She was on her deathbed at home, uh, waiting to die. They decided next time she gets pneumonia, which she did on a regular basis, they were just going to let her die because it was just prolonging the inevitable. She, here she is. She's She's virtually blind. She can only see gray shapes. She's got a tube in her throat connected to a tube that went into the garage where there were oxygen canisters so she could breathe. She was curled up like a pretzel. Her fingers were touching her wrists. Her her feet were permanently out uh, extended. She hadn't walked in seven years, so her leg muscles had atrophied uh, and she's waiting to die. Uh, One lung, by the way, was collapsed. The other lung was 50 percent. A friend of hers called WMBI, the Christian radio station in Chicago, and said, hey, would you pray for Barbara? She lives over in Wheaton and she's dying. So we documented that at least 430 Christians began and to pray for Barbara. We know that because they wrote letters saying, I'm praying for Barbara. So on Pentecost Sunday, Barbara's laying in bed as usual. And she had two friends over and they were reading her some of the letters from people who wrote saying, I'm praying for you. And Barbara hears the voice of God. And God says to her, get up, my child, and walk, which is absurd. She hadn't walked in seven years. Her leg muscles had had. But she rips the tube out from her throat and tells her friends, go get my parents. God just told me to get up and walk. And so she leaps out of bed and she said instantly, Lee, the first thing I noticed, my feet were flat in the floor. My feet had not been able to be flat for years. And, and I looked and my hands had unfolded and they hadn't unfolded for years. And then I realized I can see. She said, you'd think that'd be the first thing I'd notice, but it was actually the third thing I noticed. My vision had come back. She was completely and totally and instantaneously healed of multiple sclerosis. Her mother came running and fell to her knees, grabbed her calves and said, your muscles have returned. Her muscle tone instantly returned. Well, she was a member of Wheaton Wesleyan Church. And that night there was a service at the church. And she went to the service and showed up about halfway through the service. And the pastor's up there and he says, does anybody have any announcements? And Barbara comes walking down the center aisle and the whole church just freaked out. They began singing Amazing Grace. I once was blind and now I see. So the next day she goes to one of her doctors and he said later, he said, when I saw her walking down the corridor, my first thought was, Oh, she died, and this is a ghost. <laughs> that made more sense said, to him. <laughs> yeah, it would have made more sense. He said, "This is medically impossible." And as I say, two doctors have written books in which say of hers uh, describing what had occurred. This, there is no medical explanation for this. And now, by the way, she later married a pastor. And together they have a little uh, Wesleyan church in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And I interviewed her at length, studied her records at length. I mean, this. I mean, even the secular media at the time this happened carried stories about it. I don't know what you do with that, other than to say that God is still in the miracle business today.
1: Might be a question when I hear these stories. I think is the well, what now or what's next? Right, the the so what kind of takeaway from this? I mean, I'm just going to throw some things out there. One takeaway: we're not praying enough. We're not asking God to do enough things. We're 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 too timid, or we're disillusioned, or it feels really far away. Another one might be thinking about since again, this is kind of how I was raised, or as how are people exploiting this? (laughs) Or, you know, what is the what is the dark side of this type of thing? If only because some of the ways that I've encountered reports of miracles have been in places that have often felt very sensationalistic.
2: When I interview people for my books, it tends to be my style. I interview scholars on various things. I always pay them because I'm taking their time and expertise and so forth. So after I interviewed Barbara, I gave her an envelope with a thank you note and I I wrote her a check. And because I took some of her time. A few days later, I get a letter from her uh, with the check returned to me. And and she said, you know, I, I really appreciate that, but I, I can't accept anything from what God did for, in my life. So it was kind of the opposite of those who were sensationalizing things. I think part of the answer is, you know, we do not have because we do not ask. Do we really come to faith in God and, and ask him to intervene supernaturally? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Sometimes our own skepticism, I think, gets in the way. But I think it's a completely legitimate issue. And I knew I couldn't write a book about miracles without dealing with this issue of what about miracles that don't happen? You know, that, that's a huge issue uh, in my own life. My wife has a medical condition that has had her in pain every day for 20 years, and she will be in pain every day for the rest of her life unless God intervenes with a miracle because she has an incurable condition. We have prayed for a miracle. It has not happened. And so I knew I had to address this. And so what I did is I went to a scholar who's written a 715 page book on the evidence for Christianity, Dr. Douglas Groteis of Denver Seminary, but whose wife was dying of a brain condition at the time. indeed, she did after the book came out. So he had prayed for a miracle for his wife and it had not happened. And so I interviewed him about this issue. And I tell you what, I've I've been interviewing people for decades. It was one of the most profound interviews I've ever had because he talked with the intellect of a scholar with the heart of a husband, a spouse whose wife was going through a tragic situation where she no longer knew what a telephone was, she didn't know how to use a hairbrush, her mind had deteriorated to that degree. I just encourage anybody who who, who wrestles with this to read that chapter because it was and I said, Doug, you need to write a book about this. And he did. It's called, gosh, I'm trying to think the name.
1: Do you know the name of it, Mark?
0: don't know the name of it. I was just going to interject. A short version of that book is an article he wrote for Christianity Today. It was one of the reasons he was encouraged to write the book because it got such positive feedback from the CT article.
2: That's exactly right. I think it's called Trudging Toward Twilight or something Something like that. that.
0: So for a short and dirty version, do CT Doug Grotheis, and you'll find that. And then you can probably figure out how to get to Amazon and go from there on that. Yeah. But it really did change his... How it changed his life in many ways. How he how he wrote, what he thought about,
2: and, and he has some lessons for all of us. I think you know one of the things he points out is that miracles were not automatic in the New Testament either that, you know, Matthew talks about the disciples giving the authority to heal. And then a few chapters later, they fail to heal an epileptic boy. Paul didn't heal everybody. A Trophimus was sick and Paul left them sick and went off on a missionary journey. Healings were not automatic then either. And we have to allow for the sovereignty of God who sees things and knows things and understands things that we don't. And, you know, frankly, you know, we like to throw around Romans 8:28 28, a cliche, but you know what? It's from the word of God. It says, you know, God causes all things to work together for good, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And and by the way, God will heal all of us, all of his followers as we leave this life and, and enter into the next life, a place of no more pain, suffering or tears. But it's 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 a touchy issue because it's an emotional issue. We can talk about it rationally and we can say that there are answers that make sense. But people who are wrestling with this, that's still, it's it's still a, a very real and present issue in their lives.
0: I've always taken it to be miracles like that are, they're far and few between for most of us, but they happen enough for us to to give us a glimpse of the life to come of when we have will have complete healing. Because I mean, even if you're healed from cancer in this life, you're still going to die or whatever infirmity you have. But it is a it is a moment when you God says, Okay, remember a real complete healing is going to happen. So Hang on there.
2: Exactly. You know, we can we can pray that a loved one who dies be resurrected. The truth is they will be resurrected if they're followers of Christ. And you know, I know when my friend Nabil Qureshi died, I was there with him shortly before he passed. You know, we love Nabil and uh, scratch our heads why God took him from this world when he did. Uh, and, you know, some of us prayed for a resurrection. Uh, but you know what the truth is? He, is? he is and will be resurrected. He is still alive. He is in the presence of God. And God does ultimately answer that prayer.
1: I feel like this is the part that it gets a little bit like dicey, right? On the one hand, when we were talking about earlier, right, these miracles are being committed as a way to kind of prove that Jesus is God. I mean, they're not the ultimate proof, but they're they're one way to draw attention to that. They obviously are, are, are ways that really... Really can reinforce our belief in God at the time. And yet at the same time, when we do not see them happen, it seems like we have to be extremely cautious of not then <laughs> use them as a litmus test that God is therefore not working. At all in the world
2: you know it's interesting uh, you know Craig Keener who wrote the two volumes on miracles and and is a great scholar in this area he told me that in China where we see growth of the church at, at a strong rate some have estimated up to 90 percent of the growth of the church in China is results of people themselves or knowing someone who has had a supernatural healing in, in places in the world where for instance Mozambique or Brazil that we talked about earlier where people are often are illiterate. They can't read the the Gospels even if he gave them to them. They tend to believe in superstitions and so forth. God, I think, takes advantage of that, uses miracles to point people toward him as a way to lay the groundwork for the spread of the Gospel in new areas. And then one of the miracles that fascinates me the most, and we're seeing this in a global phenomenon that I document in my book, The Case for Miracles, seeing God intervening directly in the lives of Muslims who are having dreams about Jesus and who are coming to faith. These are not situations generally where someone goes to sleep, has a dream about Jesus, wakes up a Christian. There's external verification to a lot of these, and that's what I found fascinating. What I mean by that, I'll give you an example. There was a woman in Cairo, a mother of four, as I recall, a Muslim woman. She had a Jesus dream. Jesus appears to her. She feels his love and grace in a way that is so contrary to what she had been raised in her faith tradition, this this incredible grace and love, and, and she's walking Walking in her dream with Jesus uh, along the lake. And it's the most powerful and vivid dream she's ever had. She's so drawn to him. And she says, tell me more. And he said, well, my friend will tell you. And she said, who's your friend? And, and Jesus points to a man that she hadn't noticed who was walking with them. And Jesus gestures to him and says, he will tell you. The next day she goes to the crowded marketplace in Cairo and she's walking along and she sees the man from her dream. And she runs over to him and puts her finger in his face. And you're the man. You're the one. And he, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? You were in my dream. And he said, wait a minute. Did you have a Jesus dream? And she said, yes. And he said, well, let me tell you about Jesus. He was a missionary and opened the New Testament and and taught her about Jesus. What I mean by this external verification. uh, So these are not things just happening in people's minds that are perhaps easy to dismiss as being who knows the cause of, you know, maybe a bad pizza they ate or whatever. This external connection intrigues me the most because is that a kind of verification that this is more than just a, a mental state that they went through? We actually had this happen in our church here in Houston. I'm actually writing this chapter in my book about, these supernatural dreams. We had a woman from our church, we're an oil community, so we have a lot of people in the oil industry. This woman was transferred, her husband was transferred here from the Middle East in a place where it was illegal to share the gospel. She had had a Jesus dream when she was 17 years old, which Jesus appeared to her, had made a huge impact on her. She comes into Houston here, and she has another dream in which she is in a body of water up to her waist. And there's a man with her with a book that's open, and he's reading, from the book, and he's weeping. She's never heard of baptism. She doesn't know what this dream was about. She meets a neighbor who goes to our church. Her neighbor invites her to come to Easter, says at our church. She comes to our church. She's sitting there waiting for the service to begin, and she sees the man from her dream. she said, you're the man. You were the one in my dream. Turned out his name is Alan Splawn. He's our director of baptisms and evangelism. She ends up coming to faith in Christ, and then just as the dream foretold you know, on our pond at the church, with an open book with tears in his eyes, Alan Splawn baptizes her. So here I'm writing this chapter about what's going on in the Middle East, and here it happens right in our own neighborhood. Wow.
0: It harkens to the story of Paul and Ananias. Some yes. ways. Not quite exactly a parallel, but.
2: But it's, a, again, I think it's a, a, a form of the miraculous and and, and a, an expression of the love and grace of God. You know, you can pass as many laws as you want saying you can't share the gospel. You know, it doesn't stop God from intervening. <laughs> in his, he's going to find he's a way. He's not a
0: respecter of the law in that regard.
2: That's
1: right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I just want to end with one kind of oddball question, which is just one
0: of many that you have.
1: With one, I will I will own fess up to being oddball. Okay. Compared to all the other ones that I was just trying to sneak in there. I'm just trying to make sense of something that happens in the New Testament and see if there's any way to apply it here, which is just the fact that Jesus is constantly asking people to not talk about what he just did after he goes and he does these miracles. And I, for the life of me, never really understood it. It was always just like, well, Jesus, if you didn't want people to pay attention to you, why'd you do the miracle? <laughs> like, that seems very odd. But does that have any bearing on the ways that we are talking to other people? So if you believe that you've experienced a miracle, how you're supposed to share it or not
2: share it? You know, Jesus was in a unique position. He didn't want his ministry to be prematurely short-circuited by an execution that came before time was due for the, his ministry to, be, uh, to culminate. And so I think he had a motivation at certain times for people not to be spreading the word about what he had done, if only to preserve the time. Time he had available to do ministry before he was ultimately executed. So I think that that provides a unique situation for him. I think today, am I skeptical of people that get a lot of money uh, by proclaiming that God is working miraculously through them? Yeah, I am. I think the Bible says, "Test everything and hold fast to that which is good." And so we have to we have to test things. I, I still think it's important that we as Christians be a bit skeptical. We don't want to be too gullible. It's okay to be a little skeptical of things that we see, to test them and to see if there's good evidence that something really did occur. And then secondly, to look at the fruit that is born of a person's ministry to see is it good fruit. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's a good thing to be discerning. Maybe that's the best word to use, to be discerning about what we hear, test everything and hold that fast to that, which is good.
1: Well, thank you so much for giving us a sense of what you've been researched and looking into. Obviously, people can go check out your book if they want to read more about that in depth, and people who have comments and questions and feedback for us, you can send us an email. We're at podcast at Christianity We are also at CT Podcast if you want to go on Twitter and tell us how you feel. Now is the time of the show when we ask you to support us and the stuff that we're doing. And we thought we would just give you an example of someone who recently did that. Thank you so much to this dear reader. We felt very touched by your handwritten letter, I will say. And Mark was going to read some of it out loud.
0: This is from uh, Kate Ubersachs, I think that's pronounced correctly in Indiana. She writes, Christianity Today, thank you so much for the effort that goes into quick to listen podcasts. I subscribe to the magazine and don't find the time to read and digest each article. However, I thoroughly enjoy the quick to listen podcast each week and listen to them in the kitchen. I've learned about things I would not have read a whole article about and sometimes go back to articles that are mentioned on the show. Thank you for bringing knowledgeable people on who... I would not otherwise be aware of
1: it was really nice right
0: very nice and that's exactly what we're trying to do i love it when a reader thanks us for doing the thing we are really trying to do (laughs) I know. And I
1: always consider, like, I think that our, like, special weapon a lot of times is finding people I have not even heard about until that actual day. And then I'm blown off. My mind is blown by all the information that they can tell us. And I
0: like the fact that we try within a spectrum to get people left and right, up and down, that help us see the world from their point of view. We we try to challenge them. But for the most part, when they're on the show, they get to do their shtick. Mm -hmm. They get to say what they think. Mm -hmm. And we want to hear from them. We may not agree with them, but we want to hear from them. So it's the genius of the show.
1: It's a hospitable place. All right. So thank you for letting us be proud of our own show for a second there. If you are also happy to be listening to this and you would also like to support us, we do like handwritten notes. You can also send us money. That is going, if you want to do that, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcast, morect.com slash podcast. Now is the time of show that we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets a chance to share something that has brought them joy.
0: This is a week, last week and this week, well, last week I mentioned just a number of celebrations for my term of service here. But then this week has been I had an old friend who I actually helped hire here for a few years. Dave Getz took me out to breakfast and then Jake Walsh took me out to lunch today. And then George, a friend in the finance department, is going to take me out to breakfast next week. So this is nice. It isn't a, it, it isn't a real goodbye because I plan to be, you know, still in touch with people, but it's just a nice honoring of our friendship and entering into a new stage. So
2: that is a joy for me.
1: Good. I'm glad you feel celebrated, Mark. Do I to offer one? Please. We would love it.
2: You know, I'm a grandfather. I have uh, four grandkids. And to see one by one grandkids coming to faith is it, such a joy. Sometimes it's funny. We were at dinner and my oldest granddaughter, Abigail, said, could I pray for dinner tonight? And we said, sure. So this is what she prayed. She said, God is good. God is great. Thank you for the Lone Star State. So, <laughs> so she is a true Texan. That's a true Texan prayer. prayer exactly. <laughs> but uh, but our little eleven-year-old uh, uh, Penelope baptized just recently, and just to watch that happen and to see her blossom in her faith, and to see her uh, in, in wide-eyed wonder, learn about Christmas and what it's really about, and the incarnation, and and so forth, and it's just a joy to to see young people come alive in their in their faith.
1: Where can people find you in your books and website and so forth?
2: Yeah, my website, LeeStrobel.com, or, you know, we just started a new center for evangelism and applied apologetics at Colorado Christian University. And we're going to be offering uh, scores of courses online on evangelism and apologetics in different areas, um, accredited courses. And if people want information about that, they can go to ccu.edu slash Strobel Center, get the information about that our new courses begin in the fall.
1: I feel like for precious moments, oftentimes Mark does one that he's like looking forward to. All right. I'm going to do that too. My parents are coming to Chicago for Christmas and it's going to be great because I think we'll go to the movies the whole time. No, just kidding. I think we will go to the movies some of the time, but I'm going to see Star Wars without them. I think they'll get over it. They'll be fine.
0: That will be a precious moment next week because I, I have been invited to go out to lunch with them. Um, we're not going to invite Morgan. I'm just going to talk about Morgan. No, I'm just kidding
1: <laughs> exactly. He wants to fact check something. So I want to figure life.
0: out who are these parents are that raised such a talented young woman? <laughs> Thank you, Mark. So uh, what the awesome. what the keys were? Yeah,
1: yes, well, you'll find out. I will. and hopefully, you know how you. I'm sure you guys have never done this thing. But, you know, you go hang out with your parents. Sometimes you revert to being your teenage self. So exactly. I'm really hopeful that that is not <laughs>
0: the, the version of I would me like that to shows see, up. I would like to see you in your teenage self.
1: <laughs> no, not that version. <laughs> but I'm really looking forward to them coming, and it'll be great for them to meet Mark and meet some other folks that are around here as well. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript that you can find online is made possible by Budnia Shola. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, etc., etc. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show on there. And thank you, everyone, who subscribed to this magazine. It is at orderct.com slash podcasts. Merry Christmas. Bye.